0: Champions Radio, Season 5, Episode 11. Today, we'll be talking about Cisco Multicloud. Our Cisco SME today is Pete Johnson, and our champion hosts today are Luke Riballo and Matt Javanovich, and I hope I didn't mess that up too much. As for me, I'm Brett cool. Shore from the Cisco Champion program team, and I'm your moderator today. Pete, if you can just introduce yourself briefly and tell us a bit about your role at Cisco, that would be a great start.
1: Sure. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me for starters. So I'm a technical solutions architect in uh, Wendy Barr's organization. So externally, that's known as the global partner organization internally. That's known as the global sales scaling engines organization. So I was part of the clicker acquisition. So I spent about two and a half years there prior to uh, us being acquired by Cisco about two years ago. Uh, And before that, I was a founding member of the HP cloud team. That was HP's attempt to compete directly with Amazon Web Services uh, based on OpenStack and some other things. I've been in this cloud space for uh, since about 2010, so about eight years or so. And my role in Cisco is uh, to help our partner ecosystem come up to speed on our different cloud products and the selling motions that are associated with those things. And really that, as I think we'll get into in this conversation, comes down to trying to appeal to a slightly different buyer than than our channel partners or, or the rest of our Cisco ecosystem is, is typically selling to. It doesn't mean we abandon our traditional IT buyer, but it, it also means embracing developers in a way that we haven't before.
0: Great. Thanks, Pete. Now, now, Matt,
2: if you could introduce yourself and tell us who you are, where you are, and what you do, that would be helpful. Of course. Uh, so, Matt, I'm, I'm based in uh, Spain. I'm leading the uh, cloud practice uh, in Logicalis in Europe. Uh, I come from a networking background, so basically I'm a CCIE converted into the ACI and cloud world. I'm a true fan of uh, Cloud Center and uh, Cisco's multi-cloud portfolio, uh, certified in Google Cloud and Amazon. And, yeah, I think that pretty pretty much sums it up. Great. Great introduction.
0: And same question for you, Luke. Who are you, where are you, and what do you do?
3: Yeah, so my name is uh, Luke. I'm a network engineer uh, in, based in Belgium. I work for the government, and we are uh, mainly responsible for the private cloud for the complete uh, government uh, based on OpenStack, uh, VMware, and uh, ACI, hopefully. Great, <laughs> hey, thanks. So now we'll
0: kick off this, uh, this show, and we'll go ahead and pass the buck over to Matt and Luke to start uh, to start their hosting responsibilities with Pete.
2: Okay, awesome. Uh, well, I can start if you don't mind. Uh, so basically, we're talking about uh, multi-cloud here. Uh, so, what I'd like to know is the use cases that you've been seeing so far in the multi-cloud world, because I want to know if you're actually seeing, if you're actually seeing the multi-cloud uh, like a real hybrid applications that are running in the hybrid environment, or is it more like a public public cloud combination or private public or sure. what are the customers doing now
1: sure sure that's a good place to start um, so so at a high level i think if if you look at at some of the surveys and things that have come out recently with these sorts of things cisco right now we're we're, we're we tend to cite uh, the idc cloud use survey that covered over 8000 respondents across 31 different con- countries and about 85% of, of folks of, of that group were evaluating some sort of public cloud and of those 85% 94% of them plan to use multiple clouds. And If you think about how traditional IT works, it, that 94% number shouldn't be be too much of a surprise, because if I'm sitting in like an IT ops organization and I've got, you know, depending upon the size of my enterprise, I might have several dozen applications that I'm monitoring and managing, I might have several hundred applications that I'm monitoring and managing. So just think about the diversity of the kinds of applications that you might have there, and what are the odds that one cloud would most efficiently meet the needs of all of those applications? There's just too much diversity in the way that the the applications are constructed and the way that the the application audiences are and and so forth and so on. So so really the, the necessity there is that you kind of have to match the application with the best cloud. And so let me, let me give you a pretty common example. So uh, a public facing marketing website is a great example of what you might want to use public cloud for. So there's, there's not typically data security concerns there because that's data that you want people to see. So you, you don't worry about security there nearly as much as you might with the second example I'll cover here in a moment. But the demand on that system varies widely depending upon, you know, if if you just bought the commercial that aired immediately after the men's 100 meters at the Olympics, or if, you know, you've got no marketing activity going on, or, or you know, you're not doing any kind of conferences, or, you know, whatever your marketing activity might be. So the, the demand of that is variable, the security risk is low, so that makes it a great, uh, uh, that, that marketing website that makes it a great fit for a public cloud because you can match the elasticity of uh, your demand with, with uh, being able to, to turn on and off VMs or containers to, to match whatever your load is. Contrast that with say your financial data systems where you've got a, probably a small set of executives and finance people who are looking at that data on a daily basis and it's highly sensitive. So the the load on that, the demand for that data is pretty constant because it's got a pretty small audience and the data is highly sensitive. So that makes a little more sense to put that inside your firewall on a private cloud. So I use these two examples as kind of the extremes as to why you might choose a public cloud for one application and a private cloud for another application. But if you're the IT ops team, you've got to deal with both of them, and that's why products like Cloud Center start to make sense. If you need to manage those applications, you need to have one pane of glass to manage those applications across the different
3: places that they might be deployed. Okay. Then, yeah, that's perfect. Fun, thanks. From from. From what you say, do you see a lot of uh, maturity in the enterprise and the way they consume the cloud? Because what you say is, yeah, you, each cloud, the private, public, you need to map that to the, your application. Uh, do you see trends coming or uh, um, yeah, maturity from the enterprise on sure. making good use of the, of the cloud?
1: Sure. So that's, that's another good question. Uh, the other, the other thing, if you read through Cisco marketing materials that tends to fall out of that same IDE, IDC study is this idea of how mature is your cloud adoption? And they break it into buckets of ad hoc, opportunistic, repeatable, managed, and optimized. So there's five different buckets. So you, you can, you know, without getting into the specific definitions, if you think of it as, you know, different, different percentage of, of, of organizations being at different places of maturity and, and optimized, which, which they define, I'll define that one, is delivering innovative and IT enabled products and services for internal and external cloud providers, driving business innovation through transparent access to IT capacity based on the value of businesses and transparent cost measures. So only 11% of those surveys felt like they were optimized. As opposed to the ad hoc, which is at the the, the other end of the spectrum. That's increasing awareness of cloud technology options, turning to the cloud to address immediate needs, often in some unauthorized matter. So, from the IT ops perspective, that's the dreaded shadow IT. From the line of business developer perspective, they just think of that as I I got to get work done, and I can't sit through multiple tickets in six weeks to just get a VM when I could go run a credit card and get it in ten minutes. So there's there's Typically, when we show this in like an EBC to a, a customer that you they tend to get like a sigh of relief, because the if you read the hype out there in the analyst community that the thought is, is that you're if you're not running optimized multi cloud right now you're probably behind and that's just not the case there's. We're still pretty early in this cloud journey, especially when when viewed through that IT ops lens um, so with that over only 11% of them optimized that's you know almost 90% that are not and that's where. You know some of the things like cisco advisory for some of these things starts to, to come into that so that we can help uh organizations
3: along in that journey yeah i think you, you need a, a cisco partner or cisco advanced services to to help you do the transition and make the best use of uh, of the cloud
1: absolutely and and every and every journey is going to be a little bit different because everybody's got different legacy issues to deal with they're in different markets like it, it there's not necessarily a one size fits all there. There are some guidelines that you can take. Certainly, you know, with with like some of the examples that I gave uh, the the two examples of different application types I gave earlier. But there's going to be a whole lot of applications and services that sort of sit in that gray area that you're going to have to try one way or another. And maybe, you know, maybe you guess wrong at first and you, you try again. I mean, the, I think the one of the big things that's different about this transition versus what we've done in the past is IT traditionally is pretty risk averse and when it comes to adopting cloud technology, the, the benefits of a of, of willingness to, to go out and fail and then learn from that failure and, and use that to cycle through to build something better, like we're, we're kind of having a, a an adjustment into how people think about these things as opposed to, you know, going and and building requirements lists for months and having weighted spreadsheets that score different choices and, you know, by by the time you fill one of those out in six months, you could have tried like three or four services and maybe two of them work and the other two you shut off and then you go and try to find the, you know, the next set of things you want to try.
2: Uh, so, just a question regarding that eleven percent. It seems like a low number. Is it? Do you have the feeling that it's because the customers don't understand uh, cloud as a technology as a broader platform, or because they don't really know where they want to move with their business, where they want to be in in a certain number of years?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's partially those things, and I think it's partially this this growing idea that I just talked about that. Speed is is sometimes more important than cost efficiency, um, and and getting used to that that way of thinking about the world. I mean, wh- when I started writing code professionally in the early '90s, developers had almost no power. We were almost all in IT, and we were writing software for our own internal processes. And that's very different now. If you go look at um, like the if you go look at like Stack Overflow surveys and. And the kinds of jobs that developers are sitting in now that they tend to be in line of business teams and those line of business teams tend to value speed and innovation over over risk avoidance and security so that's that's a very different mindset than you know we had 25 years ago when when all almost all developers were either developing commercial software for you know for for consumers or they were in IT departments. But now you, you, you could go Google an you know, example, like pick, pick a company, pick pick like what, what, pick the last company you went and bought like your groceries from or that you just bought your last piece of clothing from and go Google that company with the phrase uh, software engineer or software developer jobs. And what you'll find is that everybody is hiring software engineers now because what what all companies have figured out is that the easiest way to inject change into their marketplace is with software as opposed to with with hardware based solutions. The example I always give there is, it's, it's really simple, think about if you had a flip phone versus a versus a smartphone and what if you wanted to change the color of one of the dial buttons in either of those scenarios in the flip phone scenario, that's, you know, you have to change the manufacturing process, you need to get a different supply of, of dye to change to whatever color you want, and then even when you get all that done in the months that that would take, only your new users are going to get the changes. But in the smartphone scenario, you could make that change in an hour and millions of people could have that change the next day. Now that's an extreme example, but, you know, if you think about how software has kind of invaded our lives in a way that was unimaginable 30 years ago. Every business in 2018 is a software business. And, and because of, of this embracing of agile software methodologies and failing quickly, and you don't know what ideas are good. So the the faster that you can get them out in front of customers and get feedback, the better. So, so that mindset versus the mindset that we had in the early nineties, where, you wanted to release software as infrequently as possible because if you had to replace that physical server, it would take months to get it back. To get it back, to get, to get a new one, you know, we were very risk averse in how we deployed in the frequency with which we deployed applications, and now we have the exact opposite. So I think a big part of that 11% is 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 some of this uh, this cultural thinking change yeah, that we're so going it's, through. It's
3: uh, these are st- startups and and uh, new new companies I well think.
1: it's not just startups and new companies I mean you 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 can go like uh, the U.S. example that I'll use this will be lost in some of our European friends but there's a retailer here in the U.S. called Kohl's which is a not quite a big box retailer but you can pretty much buy whatever you want at, at Kohl's for clothes or you know for small appliances for your home and so forth and you know they they do like you know, monthly, if not weekly releases of the, the app that they have for their, uh, for their, for their consumers that walk through their store, and try to give them a better shopping experience. I mean, if they're not a fortune 500 company, they're right on the cusp. So they're, they're certainly not a startup. You certainly wouldn't think of them as a technology company, but they, like I said, if you go Google that they're hiring dozens of engineers every month. And it's because, like I said, they figured out that the best way in their particular market in you know, consumer goods to the best way to compete is to have better software, to have, have better ways of improving the, the, the customer experience or better ways of, of making it so that their employees can can react to certain situations in store.
3: Do you think also the, the bad rep- reputation of cloud and security is maybe something that makes it more difficult for companies to move to cloud? well i I would go back
1: to to the idea that that it it depends on the workload I, i don't think that we can make broad statements anymore about i i will or will not move to public cloud because of security i think you need to sort of double click on okay what's my application portfolio which ones am i worried about and for those that i am worried about you know for example cisco has this suite of cloud protect assets that can make it easier to place a security envelope around those applications in certain ways. Um, I, I, think you, you, I think you've probably started to, started to see, and I don't have the exact uh, survey numbers to, to, to back this up in front of me, but it's certainly there's not as much concern about security now than there was 10 years ago. I mean, once upon a time, you know, for a very long time in, in AWS, for example, you could only deploy VMs into a public IP space. They didn't have the notion of putting putting VMs behind a firewall or a different network segments. It was just everybody was out there on the public bare internet, and that obviously raises some security concerns, concerns. But you know, you for at least the last uh, eight years, I think VPC came out in 2010, if not 2008, and it was an even number year for some reason. I remember that you know, you were able to set up these, they call them VPCs, but they're really their own virtual private clouds. but they're really their own LAN segments that you can place. Um, it, it's like VLANs, basically, that you can launch your, your VMs into those VLANs, and, and the VMs can talk to each other, and you set up virtualized routers. And so not all of them oh, have IP well, dra- P P addresses P address. and are, are exposed in, in that same attack surface as it was in the older days of cloud. So certainly better from the public clouds perspective. You can augment that with tools like you know what we do for Umbrella, or we've got some things in Meraki System Manager, or Tetration, or Stealthwatch Cloud, or CloudLock. I mean, there's other products that you can use to layer on top of that. And then again, I I don't think I don't think that that it, we can make broad statements about either I will or won't at a corporate level. But you have to look at it more closely at an application by application level now.
3: Regarding more products. Um... With the announcement of Aci Anywhere and uh, seeing that you know can uh, run uh, uh, VMware NSX in the cloud, uh, do you think it's the good way to consume cloud, or maybe is it just to, to offer a transition phase for people to to extend right. their infrastructure in the in the cloud and then move to a cloud-native uh, way of consumption? Well, I think. It's it's been interesting to me,
1: for me, to be part of Cisco here the last two years uh, where where most people in the Cisco ecosystem definitely have like the layer 2 or 3 of the OSI model perspective of the world as opposed to an application developer who would have a layer 7 perspective of the world. Um, And from that layer 2 or 3 perspective of the world, it it certainly would make sense if you had one methodology for managing your network on-prem you would like to extend that to the public cloud and and things like ACI anywhere you see some things that what we're doing with the the CSR series and in the edge series to to make it easier to set up those VPN connections we're not quite there yet where you could say you know go to your APIC UI and be able to have one place on-prem where you're managing all your your on-prem stuff and all your cloud stuff but we're getting pretty close I don't know if you guys have seen, um, as, as part of the, the Cisco container platform, there's a component within there. It's an open source component uh, that we've tricked out a bit called Contive, which yeah. basically makes it so that you can take a container, a, a, a Kubernetes distribution, a Kubernetes cluster, and you add ConTeve to it. And among the things that you can do with Contive, you can do lots of different things with ConTeve. But among the things you can do with CONTV is you can can have that be like a a management bridge between your Kubernetes cluster and your APIC controller. So now, if you've got all that on-prem with CCP, for example, I can now, as a network administrator, use the same endpoint groups and contracts and all the, the different constructs within ACI for managing my network. And I can now use that to manage bare metal, manage VMs, and to manage containers all from that single from that single pane of glass, and and I think what you know the kind of the the nirvana of all that would be to to not only have that single pane of glass from the network engineer's perspective encompass all that stuff on prem, but also encompass some of that stuff that's in various public clouds as well. Much the same way that like a more layer seven perspective that Cloud Center gives you today, where um, with with the announcement that we had of the Kubernetes orchestrator. on on Cloud Center. So now, you know, whether I'm deploying on on VMs or on containers or on public cloud or on private clouds, I can I can manage them all from kind of a layer seven perspective from that single pane of glass on Cloud Center. So I think you're starting to see like incremental steps towards that so that so that you get kind of this this nirvana being able to manage everything from that one place. Um, I
2: have a a sort of an unpopular question. (laughs) Uh, So Um, When you talked about about, uh, cloud management platforms in general, uh, there is uh, obviously the system integrator, Logicalis, we see uh, a lot of uh, interest around that area. And, uh, for example, there are some, like, for example, Red Hat Cloud Forms that are basically for free, not for free, but really cheap. Uh, Terraform is also quite attractive to the Programmers, from what we've seen, also, right scale is really popular. Um, could, could you tell us maybe the differentiators? Uh, what feedbacks have you gotten from the customers who maybe transitioned from one of the others to the cloud center? And uh, what benefits are you actually seeing on the, in the market there?
1: Sure. So, there's a couple of ways to think about this, but I, I think that the main thing, if you think about how cloud center architecture works, the most important the most important thing conceptually about cloud center is is that cloud center thinks of the application as the first class citizen so it thinks about the world from layer seven down as opposed to layer one up and and that ends up making a pretty big difference relative to many of our competitors in, in the way that we view deployments um so for example like the 800-pound the gorilla in this space you you didn't mention it just now matt but is is um is the vrealize suite and that could be a great tool set if all you're doing is deploying on top of vmware Uh, but if you want to start to deploy things on things that are not vmware whether that's you know native in azure or google cloud or 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 even azure stack on prem uh some of the models that, that are in a lot of those tools start to break down because they view the world from the resources up as opposed to the application down. So, I, I, Matt, I know you're familiar with this because you and I, when we saw each other a couple of weeks ago at, at Partner Connection Week, we talked about this a little bit, right? The, the thing you do in Cloud Center is the first thing you do is you model your application. So what are the components of the application? You know, like web servers, local load balancers, database servers, and and how do those components interact with one another? And then for each of the individual components, you tell Cloud Center not just about what middleware you might be interested in. Let's say an Apache web server. You don't want to just go deploy an Apache web server to have it say hello world, right? You you have some, you know, let's say it's a, a Lamp stack application, and I've got some, um, I've got some uh some Python code that I want to deploy on there. That's that's gonna form the basis of of my business logic for my application. So tell us where we can find those custom files that make your application uniquely yours. So once you've done that, once you've bundled that into what we call an application profile, you can now deploy it across, you know, any of the, depending upon how you count it, you know, 16 to 20 different backends that we support, including Kubernetes now, like I mentioned before. So that main concept, you know, you can you can spend a whole lot of time in Cloud Center without talking about the specific resources on top of which that application will be deployed. So, so because of that, um, with with the application profile as sort of your deployable unit, now you can have all kinds of governance in place. So, as an IT ops person, I can I can make it so that my development staff can go and and spin up resources on a moment's notice without having to go through some complex ticketing process but i get to inject some of my own you know security and and pricing governance in this so i might say okay matt you can only deploy applications x y and z and you can only deploy them on aws us west and i might say luke here you can you can deploy applications b and c but you can only deploy them on uh on, uh, on Google central or maybe only on my private cloud so those are the kinds of things in terms of putting some guardrails around who is allowed to deploy what where and then there's a financial part of this as well and, and there's a there's a new costing feature with cloud center 4.9 that's part of the compute io uh, acquisition that we just did um, where I could say okay Matt you you're a developer and you can only spin up you can only spin up 25 vms at a time and, and maybe Luke, uh, but you're maybe Luke. You're an ops person, and so you've got some production workload that you're managing. You can spend as much as five thousand dollars per month, and I don't care if it's on a public cloud or what I'm charging you for a private cloud. So a, a big part of it, you know, like I mentioned, the, the the perspective that Cloud Center takes is important. But then so is so are all the the governance rules that are in place for for not only. Access control, but then also the cost controls, so that you have a single pane of glass that you can you can use to uh, to put some guide, guardrails up. The, the analogy I'll make: I was just talking to um, at, at Partner Connection Week. I spent some time. Um, I don't know if you guys know a nose over at uh, Zentars, and he he had this example for me that made sense. Was think about banking. Right. I, I can go up to an ATM anywhere in the world and I can very quickly get access to cash out of my, out of my uh, accounts. but there's a limit as to how much I can take at a, at a typical time. Like, I think my limit is I can get $300 a day. Whereas if I, I need, you know, something more, you know, if I needed, let's say a thousand dollars in cash or something, I can get that, but I have to walk into the. To the branch for that. I have to show them some identification. I have to you know give them some some other personally identifiable information before they'll you know let me do things like apply for a home loan or you know or get a cashier's check or you know there's there's some things in the banking industry where if you're getting somebody access to larger sums of money you have to go through different security aspects. Whereas If i'm just you know doing quick cash to you know go pay for a movie or buy a sandwich or something i can i can go get that from an atm quickly so so this is the kind of thing that that cloud center can do from uh from a compute resource in the cloud perspective that it can set up it can set up these it it can basically set up the, the atm part of that analogy so that as a developer or even as like a marketing person that wants to spin up a wiki or a blog somewhere I can do those things very quickly without having to go through some cumbersome ticketing process. But because the governance that's baked into the system, both from an access perspective and from a from a cost perspective, that IT team gets to maintain some control without inhibiting the speed of their of their different consumers. In this example,
3: you mentioned uh, Contiv, uh, which is uh, open source. Um, There were two other projects in the uh, open source community with uh, Cisco and container that was uh, shipped and mental. Yep. Do you see them deployed? Do you you see them being integrated in other projects or do you have any information regarding that?
1: No, I don't think we'll see that going forward. I think those were really good experiments for us to learn a lot about what the capabilities of the container space were. Um, I've not heard of, of folks spending a whole lot of time on that since about last fall when we kind of made the turn uh, to, to working on CCP and we made the broader announcement with Google. Um, so yeah, I don't, as, as cool as Mantle and Shipt were, I don't think we'll see a lot of work on that going forward. But you know, CCP is obviously a big part of the portfolio mm-hmm. going yeah. forward. It has, has benefits to sort of lowering the learning curve for our friends in IT ops while uh, making it so that we, we don't have to slow down developers in those line of business teams who now don't have to, de- don't have to go deploy and manage their own Kubernetes clusters on public yeah. cloud because now they can get them from IT more quickly than they did before and, and with better support because Cisco TAC will take frontline support on that and then uh, Google takes second level support on that.
3: Can we talk about the product, the Cisco Workload Optimization Manager? And do you see that as a complement to Cloud Center or are they placed differently in the portfolio?
1: No, so, no, CWAM definitely is a complement to Cloud Center. Okay. And uh, although I've not used it personally, I mean, one of the, the cool things about Cloud Center is there's all kinds of hooks in Cloud Center for interacting with all kinds of things. And, and workload placement with CWAM you know, based on all the data that you can you can get in there w- within CWOM and, and the underlying Turbonotic, Turbonotic, Turbonomic product um, is is all part of that. So there's a hook that uh, that an IT administrator, so somebody with an admin rights in Cloud Center when they're setting up something called a deployment environment. So think of a deployment environment in Cloud Center as an envelope around one to many clouds. Uh, I can grant you access to a deployment environment and, and then by extension by the clouds that are Uh, that are that are within that envelope. And and among the things that I can do when I set up a um, when I set up a deployment environment is I can specify some call-out scripts to go call a tool like uh, CWAM to to help me you know when somebody goes to deploy something uh, it could go make some decisions that that maybe that example I gave before, where, or Luke, maybe you get where the example I gave previously was maybe for for Luke you have the permission to deploy to a public or private cloud. Well, maybe maybe using that that scripting to go call CWM, I take that choice away from you, or maybe I give you an optimized. Here here's what I think you should do, but you can still overwrite it with you know clouds X Y and Z. So they're definitely complementary.
3: So we get uh, just one. Yeah, go
2: Matt. Sorry, look uh, I had a question regarding the same more or less topic because it's uh, it's a really really interesting one, and I think the cloud center with the uh, app dynamics providing the entire visibility of the application and uh, Workloads workload optimization manager and also the compute i o good acquisition by the way. Um, I think it's a really good value proposition. So I had a question regarding this, and this is the question that we had in the house, and a lot of customers also also uh, asked a similar question. Which kind of prof, because obviously developers uh, do the, you know, the their software development, and uh, for the infrastructure, you have the traditional infrastructure and engineers. But this part, this, like, uh DevOpsy part uh, with the App Dynamics and Turbonomic and uh, Compute I.O. Which profiles do you recommend to be doing this type of stuff? Because developers are obviously not really interested in that infrastructure part. And infrastructure guys don't tend to understand this you know, the application part. So do you have Great. some experience or, or recommendations? Who should we recommend going into into that area?
1: Yeah, and, and this is where you get into, this is exactly why we're seeing that 11% optimized, right? Is because of questions exactly like this and because of the traditional roles that we're talking about. I mean, to go back to the OSI model uh, again, just a little bit, the, the cool thing about the OSI model is that the, the innovation of the individual layers get isolated from each other right so I can innovate at layer two and layer seven just gets the benefit they don't have to make any changes but socially what the OSI model has done is it's isolated us from one another where you you typically you don't have people who are operating at layer seven those developers talking much to the folks at layer two and three and that leads to some of these difficult conversations like what you're bringing up here so who should be responsible for those things and and it it really depends on the organization in in some organizations it's going to be you know some developer that is or that is interested in some of the infrastructure who's going to sort of reach down the osi model and have the and be the bridge to to those folks that operate at layer two and three other times it's going to be the opposite and even third times you know maybe you're creating a new role that acts as the as kind of the, the gatekeeper between the two of them and and this is where when you get into some of the advisory this is this is why that advisory is so important is to identify those those gaps and and to help help an organization figure out what's best for them it, it, uh, among those three different choices that I just
3: went over in cloud center and in workload optimization manager uh, is there a, a lot of metrics that you can use to um, move your workloads around and maybe decide okay for this type of workload I want to go to that cloud and if we have a kind of a security breach or if uh, right Tetration sees something, that we can blacklist uh, some some infrastructure or something like that? Do you see that kind of behavior?
1: So we, we typically don't see it quite that sophisticated, although from the cloud center perspective, the hook is there for you to to do it. I mean, basically, basically what happens is that at, at the point at which it it shows the user what the deployment choices are. Cloud Center will call this script hook to, to get some amendments on what those choices should be. Um, and so in this example, it would call out to CWAM. CWAM typically does like a resource uh, a resource analysis, um, whether, it, whether it relates to, to balancing resources across say multiple VMware installations internally or um like it takes into to it takes into account capacity kinds of things that doesn't mean that it couldn't you know whatever cloud center made a, a call out to couldn't take into account things like the blacklist scenario or things like the um like the you know temporarily we think we have a breach in x uh so it doesn't do that kind of stuff automatically
3: no but you can't you can
1: the, the, but but the hook from Cloud Center just basically says, hey, what should I show this person in terms of choices? And then it's it's up to whatever it is you've called to to come up with those choices. And that's that's one of the powers of Cloud Center's modularity is that you you could plug in anything you wanted to there, including your own custom thing that maybe used blacklist and uh, CWAM for for resource utilization.
2: I was wondering because um, apparently there's this. Uh, we also we've also seen this. Uh let's say not uh, integrated model within within different departments in uh, in a, in a yeah. whole lot of customers so uh, when we go with the cmp or like a, when we present the cloud center and when we do the the entire cloud center pitch uh, normally there is just the cloud guys so the pilot of cloud center at least here in europe when we're doing it it's completely isolated from the other stuff. It's like considering multi-cloud environment. So I was wondering sure. if you, how how often are you seeing, because apparently in the application profile uh, you can integrate a whole lot of uh, stuff in your application. You can integrate F5, A10, and I don't know which others are, some are officially yes. recognized, some you can you know write yourself. Um, or you can also integrate ACI and stuff like that. Um, are you seeing uh, those kind of implementations often in the when customers are deploying cloud center? Or is it more of a CMP like uh, managing the clouds and not really uh, integrated with the, with the infrastructure in the private cloud?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's certainly a mix. And, and to extend off of the, what you were just mentioning with like uh, A10 or, or F5, so I, I mentioned before that as you're creating an application profile, you, you tell Cloud Center about the different components of your application. And I use the example of local load balancers, web servers and database servers as kind of a standard three tier web application architecture. Um, Cloud Center ships with open source, commonly used open source variants for each one of those Lego blocks is kind of the way to think of it. So say on the on the load balancing tier, for example, you, you've got, you can choose uh, between uh, engine X and a couple other choices. But if, if you wanted to integrate your, if you've got some physical F5 load balancers or even some virtualized ones, um, that doesn't ship out of the box with the product, but there are, there are definitions of those Lego blocks that are part of the, the GitHub repo that the, the sales engineers that work on Cloud Center use. So, so you can go and, and take those and so you don't have to completely start from scratch on some of the common ones. Um, but you can you can use you can use some of that stuff that's out there from uh, um, from GitHub to help you start that part of the implementation. And, and so some some organizations want to continue to, to use those in this example. The, the physical load balancers, others are trying to move away from those and move to some more virtualized uh, solutions for that. And it, it really depends on, on how, you know, some of the larger issues that you might get to if you start to get into some consultative sailing kind, selling kind of motions with, with these kind of guys and kind of act as that bridge, like we talked about before, between, uh, between developers and uh, the IT teams. So it, it kind of depends on, on what some of those macro level issues are. But you can in that specific example you can certainly do that. And then there's there's other hooks for for things like monitoring tools and making it easier to, to put in things like app dynamics and, and things of those nature. The ACI one is a little bit different because that one you do that interaction you don't do at an application profile level. That one you do at the, the private cloud level. So as I'm as an, I'm an administrator that's configuring the connectivity to my private cloud, when it's a VMware-based cloud, there's there's literally a, a checkbox that I can check if I want to, to use ACI for my networking instead of the, the default VMware. And if I click that checkbox, I'll be asked some connectivity information for the APIC controller. And then Cloud Center, as it begins to deploy applications in that mode, will automatically create endpoint groups or it can reuse existing ones and it'll automatically create... Or reuse uh, contracts between those.
3: Okay, um, you mentioned the 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 Cisco Cloud platform and the, the Kubernetes distribution that you 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 announced uh, earlier this year. Yeah, uh, I have. We are running OpenShift uh, in house, um, and I was wondering why Cisco went to the container game and what would be the the main benefits of uh, CCP uh, versus uh, a product like OpenShift or another uh, Kubernetes distribution.
1: Right. Well, the, there, there's a couple of things there. Um, you can kind of think of, and in, in, in not all this competitive is is out there yet, but the, but it, it should be here by the end of the summer or so as we begin to to create some of this content and get it out there. But, but uh, you mentioned OpenShift specifically. so if you, you can kind of think of you can kind of think of the Kubernetes work is, as having kind of multiple layers to it. Um, and so, so there's kind of the, the core distribution, right? there's kind of the, there's kind of the, the part that does the, the core container scheduling. and below that you've got things like the container networking and the mm-hmm. virtualization and, and whatever, whatever hardware you might be putting this on. Above, above that kind of main container, there's things like the logging and monitoring. There's things like your container registry, and then the apps that sit on top of that. You've got some kind of application lifecycle and some kind of CI/CD pipeline for deploying on top of those things. So OpenShift tries to break, tries to offer you a single solution that does the the entire stack worth of of uh, that. Functionality that I just described. So pretty much everything from the delivery pipeline down to where you're doing the virtualization. So you don't get a whole lot of choice there uh, because we, we kind of break that up into multiple products. So if you think about Cloud Center on top of CCP and then augmented with something like App AppDynamics, um, you get pretty close to what OpenShift offers, but with, with far more configurable, far more flexible options. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, there's an argument to be made that, you know, if you're already using Cisco TAC for your your hardware, you for your your networking hardware, and if you're a UCS or a HyperFlex customer for your servers, that you might be more comfortable just having, you know, one throat to choke when something goes wrong. Call Cisco TAC for your container platform as well. Uh, there's the there's the, the angle of this that because we're working so closely. With Google, they not only are providing the second-level support, but they're providing us the, the same Kubernetes distribution that they use on GKE we're using for CCP. So there's there's some of that peace of mind that goes along with that as well. And then I, I think the thing that people underestimate about moving to containers and about moving to cloud-native applications is you know the the, the networking is almost always the last thing that someone thinks of when we start to, to take on you know the, this revolution, it certainly happened with VMs and, and virtualizations as we, as we saw that kind of stuff last. Um, and, you know, I mean, while it is, while it is uh, open source and anybody could use Conteve, um given the amount of investment that we've made in, in, in the expertise that we've built with it and the fact that we made it so that you can have it interact with ACI. Um, that's something that you're not going to find in, in OpenShift or Cloud Foundry or, Or some of those other competitors out there in the container world so I mean really we we those are some of the benefits the competitive differentiators we have on CCP relative specifically to to OpenShift to to answer your specific question and really we got I mean we got into this is because we see this as a as a growth market I mean you you, we we talked before about how developers are starting to have purchasing power in a way that um, that we didn't before, and this is, this is a way to appeal to developers and uh, the the IT ops people that would like to serve them. That's that's kind of unique. I mean, if, if you look at some of the analyst stuff that's out there now with regard to um, to container and Kubernetes usage, what you find is uh, IT teams that are struggling to to, to overcome the learning curve. Of you know taking something off the off the top of the off the top of trunk, open source and figure out figure out a way to opera, operationalize that. So instead, developer teams are are taking it themselves, spinning it up in EC2, and then they're having to devote some of their own resources to managing that. So that's that's resources that they could be using to write code if only they could trust their IT teams to spin up Kubernetes clusters for them quickly in a way that they know aren't going to go down. Well, that's exactly what CCP does, right, is it's this set of automations that lowers that learning curve for the IT ops people so that they can manage and spin up those Kubernetes clusters with the backing of both Cisco and Google uh, in a way that that the development teams are going to trust so that now they they can free up some of those resources that they're using to manage their own container clusters today, uh, trust their IT teams, and then and then redirect those resources back to what they do best, which is writing code.
2: I have a question also related to this topic. So apparently there's been a, a lot of interest in OpenShift recently, and um, some of our customers are wondering whether – because OpenShift has been around for – I won't say for a while, but for enough to be already in some production environments. So, sure. uh, a CCP is seen as a kind of a new solution, and the maturity sure. is there being a question. So, obviously, uh, since I'm a certified as a cloud architect on Google, I really like the, the Kubernetes engine, and I know how it auto scales uh, perfectly and all that. So, um, when we talk about the CCP, my idea at this moment uh, is that it's written... Uh, deployed uh, by by Google engineers, and uh, I mean designed by Google engineers, and on top of hyper-converged platforms. So the experience regarding the scaling and uh, the the entire experience should be similar to uh, Kubernetes engine. So the product should be already mature, even though it's uh, right new to the market. So how true is this?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's. I mean, that that's a fair assessment of it. I mean, if, if you're sitting, if you're sitting in an IT ops role now and you want to pick something up that's going to give you Kubernetes capabilities, I mean, those are those are certainly two of the choices that you have. And and, and while CCP is certainly still in its early access phase, um, or we you know we're we're about to, to exit from that into the version one of general release. Yeah, everything you just said is is exactly true. Is is, you know, th- this isn't your typical version 1 of this because Google's been using this internal forever. And I mean, if you even if, if you even think of it as a how long has Kubernetes been available, right? I I think that became generally available as an open source project in in like 2015, I want to say, right? So that's only that's only been 3 years even though Google's been using it internally for a, a, a decade depending upon you know which statements out of out of Google you believe on that. So yeah, I mean it's it's a curated Kubernetes, it's a curated and automated Kubernetes stack is what CCP is in you know in one sentence, and that 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 doesn't mean it's it's sort of as green as other V1 products should would be for exactly the reasons you just you just mentioned for the, the folks that have been backing it and curating it for as long as they have.
3: Well, it's clear that uh, running CCP on top of hyperflex and with the, uh, contivacy or many ACI 3.1, um, integration makes it really easy to, to embrace the intent-based um, networking that we have been talking about for quite some time now as well
1: yeah absolutely and and that's what you're you're seeing in v1 certainly hyperflex is a big part of v1 but i think in later releases you're going to see other other hardware alternatives embraced um so it's not ex- you know longer term it's not going to exclusively be uh hyperflex but hyperflex was chosen here number one because there were some cool things that we can do with the storage driver um to make it easier to, to mount some storage onto the individual containers um it it makes kubernetes a little more approachable for smaller organizations uh who maybe don't have the the overhead to to make their own uh investments in in kubernetes on their own so they're kind of the most in need of flattening that learning curve and like i said long longer term you're you're going to see something for for other hardware platforms
3: okay great thank you Matt. do you have any other questions Uh,
2: yeah i think i think i'm good that was uh, really interesting
3: yeah i'm done i'm done as well apologize i was on mute and didn't realize yeah
0: ask here it looks like we're we're finishing up here and there's no more questions and i didn't see anything from the audience here uh pete is there anything that you want to finish with anything that you think that this audience should know before we leave this uh conversation
1: yeah i think you know the the biggest things here are you know all, all this all these things going on in this cloud area really shows cisco's commitment to to being a part of this conversation one one of the things that I, I really love about working at Cisco right now in the cloud area is that we we kind of have this cloud Switzerland approach right if if you want to take on kubernetes and. And run that on prem you can use CCP if you want to do you know your own kind of services on prem you could do something like azure stack. Um, if if you want to be able to, to connect you know another part of the Google solution is being able to connect more easily to. Uh, Google Public Cloud Services, while your kind of your main business logic sits on-prem, you can do that. Um, and I think you'll see a lot of these things shown off at at Cisco Live uh, US, which is here uh, coming up in June in Orlando. Uh, so a lot of stuff to to take a look at there.
0: Great, thanks, Pete. So we'll go ahead and wrap up then. Um, so thank you, everyone. This has been Episode 11 of Cisco Champions Radio, Season Five. I want to thank all of you for joining us today and especially to Pete for sharing his insight and Luke and Matt for hosting today's session. Great job guys. Um, as always, thanks to everyone for joining and participating in Cisco champions Radio. Look for the next episode. or I'm sorry, look for this episode and other awesome episodes on blogs.cisco.com slash perspectives. I'm Brett shore today's moderator. Tune in next week. And in the meantime, we'll see you in the Twitterverse at Cisco champions until next time.